0: Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, and I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing a song for my loved one, a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, and planted it with excellent vines. He built a tower inside it and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes. But it grew rotten grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to go grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I am removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I am breaking down its walls so that it will be transfer- trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed, righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have to admit, this passage of scripture amuses me in many ways. Uh, I, I think about it, and, and in my mind, the first image that comes to my mind is like this solo guitarist on stage who, who gets up. If you've been to a concert occasionally, like the, the artist will get up and say, well, I've got a new song for you today, right? And it's a song about a vineyard. And, and it's weird in my mind because I'm seeing this this artist up on stage, maybe this artist with a, a harp or a lyre or something like that, if we're going to go you know, Old Testament on this. Um, but he gets up and he says, I, I've written a new song, and, it, and it's a song for my loved one. And, and, and we get this touchy and feely idea, oh, a song for a loved one. Maybe we're going to get some, you know, Song of Solomon, which is some pretty intimate stuff, or, or maybe some psalms, which is, which is wonderful praise about God. And then, <laughs> And the singer gets up and says, it's a song about my vineyard. A song about a vineyard? I mean, vineyards are beautiful and some people really appreciate wine, I get that, but who sings songs about food? Who sings songs about fruit? Of course, I think about it a little bit and then I realize well. (laughs) Some of you may recognize this. Okay, I, don't, I can't do the whole thing. It's too much. <laughs> so we have a song about food, which apparently is not unheard of. But is it biblical? It's a little strange to, to hear this song and, and to hear that, that this singer, this, this worship leader is going to get up and sing a song about a vineyard. Now Mark likes his garden. But I don't know that he's written any... Have you written any songs about your garden? No. It's a song about a vineyard. Okay, let's, let's just go with it for a while. All right, so the song begins, My beloved planted a vineyard. Oh, how did I go there? There we go. He put it on a fertile hill, and, and, and the, this, the song goes on to, to, to talk about this, this beautiful vineyard and about all the things that the, that the landowner did to, to make the vineyard wonderful and beautiful and produce good fruit, right? So th- this is a, a, a picture of the Jezreel Valley in Israel looking at Mount Tabor, right? Think, think of this in your mind as, as you hear the song, as you think about what's going on in it. My beloved planted a vineyard upon a fertile hill, and the, the singer goes on to talk about all the wonderful things that the that the, the landowner did to make sure that that this this vineyard would grow well, that there would be good fruit in it. It says he carefully prepares the land and the soil. Imagine this is rocky ground. He's taking out all the rocks. He's clearing this ground. He's, he's making this wonderful, beautiful patch of fertile ground. And he uses the rocks to build a nice wall all around it. There's paths going down. And, and he plants just the best, the best vines known. I don't know what the ve- best grape vines are out there. But whatever they are, that's what he got. Right? He, he got them and he planted them. Maybe they're from Napa, California or whatever. Right? And he plants them and he tends them and he waters them and, and he prepares everything around. And in, in ancient Israel, right, it, it was customary to build a guard tower because people would steal your stuff. And so, so while, while the landowner is waiting for these vines to grow, he, you know, he puts in all the trellises and he builds walls and, and hedges so that animals won't get in and, and eat the grapes. And, and he builds a guard tower so that he can watch over his land and make sure nobody comes in and steals, make sure that animals aren't coming in and, and, and destroying what he has carefully built and he tends it and he builds out a wine press in the ground right he he digs down to bedrock and he hews out this this huge wine press so that though the, the expectation is that when the when the vines mature the grapes will come and it will produce wonderful good fruit and wine I learned this when I was researching the sermon that it takes three years for new plantings to get to a point where they can actually produce grapes. Third year. So so we can imagine that, the, that this, this landowner goes and he does all this preparation, does all this work and, and just carefully waits and waits and waits and waits for his vines to produce good fruit. Given that how much he loves his vineyard and that there's songs written about it. I can imagine he's dreaming about the day where he will pick grapes, eat them. I know these are probably more wine grapes or have the wine from them, but but he has done everything possible to make sure that this land brings up good fruit. Making the land good, watering the right amount, putting it at the right amount of sun and shade and, and trellising and pruning and, and, and doing all the things that you have to do. Apparently... Growing grapes is a labor-intensive process, even before you get grapes. And so he waits, and he waits, and he waits. He waits for good fruit. This reminds me of, of some gardening stories, and these aren't my stories. This is Jen's story, because she's the gardener in our family. I think it was the first year that we were in our house here in, in Longview. We, we made these nice big gardens. Jen did everything she could to make sure these gardens were wonderful and good and would produce good food. And, and we bought some corn seed that we thought was good and, and planted it. And we really like corn in our family. And so you can imagine, as you do, you, right, you wait for the corn to grow, right? You plant it. It's got to be knee-high by the 4th of July. That's what the—anyone else know that saying? Is that, is that a real thing? okay. I don't know. I've just heard it, right? So we we waited all summer for this corn to grow. And I like sweet corn. My family likes sweet corn. At least Jen and I like sweet corn. Kids are a little iffy. Do you like sweet corn now? Okay, you do. Sorry. I got my vegetables wrong. Sorry. But what happened is when we picked the wonderful ripe ears that year, whether it was the first year, 10th year, I can't remember when exactly it was. Jen cooked it up we salted it we buttered it and it tasted terrible is there anything more disappointing than planting something waiting for it to grow and then tasting it and eating it and going this is yucky it wasn't that good sweet corn I don't know what it was maybe the seeds were bad it was nothing that, that Jen had done in, in the cultivating and the growing we had watered it and made sure it got sun and everything but it was just not good It's disappointing. So imagine that you're someone who loves grapes enough to write a song about a vineyard. And you've planted and you've done all this work, not just for some personal grapes growing in your yard, but this is a production that this landowner has gone through. He has produced, he has done this in the hopes that it will produce good fruit. There is nothing that he neglected. There is nothing that he didn't do that would in any way indicate that something good wouldn't grow, right? Good, good plants give good fruit, right? Choice vines give good fruit. And, and so after three years, when, when the springtime comes and, and the landowner goes to eat of the grapes, he picks one off expecting it to be wonderful. And it says he found wild grapes or in the Hebrew, it's actually stinky. That's the word. It's wild slash stinky, smelly, rancid, putrid. So so imagine if you will, you are someone who likes grapes. You have grown this grape. You have tended these vines for the last three years and and something looks kind of good and you take it off the vine and you plop it in your mouth. And not only does it not taste good, it's rancid in your mouth. All that work, all that preparation, all that he has done to make sure that his land will produce good fruit. And what's he get? Stinky, rancid, wild, yucky, putrid, disgusting grapes. All that effort. All that work. All that he has gone through only to find Grapes that are gross. Of course, we know that in hearing this story, that this is not just about a vineyard, right? We know because we just read the text that that this is a metaphor for something else. But as the song goes, as the singer is singing, it takes this weird and wild turn. It's a love song about a vineyard, and then all of a sudden, as well, my vineyard is gross, it's disgusting. And and so the, the singer does a little audience participation. Tell me, audience, tell me Jerusalem, tell me Judah. Is there anything more that the landowner could have done for his grapes? Is there anything more? Is there anything he neglected? Is there anything that happened that would in any way indicate that this wonderful plant that he had planted would bring forth grapes that were disgusting and yucky? What do you do? When your good plants produce bad fruit, what, what more can you do? And, and, and the natural conclusion that this particular song comes to is, what do you do? The, the problem is not the soil. The problem is not the water. The problem is not the right amount of sun or shade. The problem isn't that birds were picking at it. The problem is that these good vines produce bad fruit. And what do you do when your vines produce bad fruit? perhaps we might look at this and go, well, the landowner is just a little bit too, like, really going over the top here. But basically what he says is this is what will happen. I got bad grapes where I should have gotten good grapes. Nothing I could have done will have changed that. I did everything. So what am I going to do? Give it up as lost. It's pretty crazy. I'm going to tear down the hedge. They're wild grapes. Let the animals eat them. I'm going to withdraw protection. I'm going to let the land go fallow. I'm just going to abandon this project once and for all. After all, you can't bring good fruit from bad grapes. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to tear it down. It's pretty heavy stuff. The song goes on and the singer basically says, Israel, this is you. I'm sure they would have caught on by now, but they got it. Israel, this is you. Again, it's a metaphor. It's not really about a vineyard. But God talks about about his loving care and God's kindness toward Israel. Basically, what God is saying here is, I have done everything possible to make sure that this people called out of nothing would produce good things. If we looked at the history of Israel, I mean, really, if we looked at the history of humanity, but it's Isaiah, so we'll talk about Israel right now. Basically, God chooses them from nothing and blesses them with everything. God chooses this guy, Abraham, and says, Abraham, for no particular reason other than your faithfulness, and you said, yes, I will make you a great nation. I will make your people number the sands of the sea. And God continues with Abraham and Abraham's people. Even when they go into slavery for 400 years, they think they're forgotten. And God says, guess what? I have not forgotten you. I will bring you out of slavery. I will bring you into this promised land. It will be yours. When the people reject God, even before the relationship starts, God says, no, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. God chooses them and says, I will go with you. I will bring you into this land. And here is this wonderful land. And you didn't plant the grapes, but you will reap them. You didn't plant the fields, and yet you will reap them. You didn't build the houses, and yet you will live in them. God says, All of this I'm giving to you. I will be with you. I will lead you. I will help you be the kind of people that will bless the world around you. God protects them, God enables them. And basically, what Isaiah is saying is that God looks at that and says, I have done everything done everything so that you would produce good fruit. God doesn't expect them to be superhuman. God doesn't expect them to be perfect. But basically what God says is when I come back, I find stinky grapes. Where I came and where I hoped that that justice would be planted, true justice, righteousness in and among you because I have enabled that in you. I found injustice. <coughs> where I came to found hope, where I come came to to plant, and where I came to expect that you would be a people of deliverance, of love, and of grace. What I found was that you were oppressors. So what am I to do? God says, "There's no, I've done everything that's possible." And so basically what we have in Isaiah 5 is God saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, but I don't know what else to do. Essentially, God says, I withdraw my protection in my hand. I won't cultivate it anymore. I will let it go because there's nothing more that I can do. It's a real happy-go-lucky scripture for you today. This is not arbitrary on God's part. I don't necessarily think it's unfair on God's part. God made a covenant with Israel. God said, I will do this for you. Produce righteousness and here are all the tools to do it. And they refused. By and large, the people did not fulfill the covenants that they had made with God. And God says, I don't know what else to do. There comes a point where injustice is so bad, God says, I have to put a stop to it. God loves God's people. God never will stop loving God's people. The song, the vineyard is still a song of love song. And yet God says, I don't know what else to do. But for the sake of the world around you, I have to say no more. If we read on in Isaiah, that's what we get. That God withdraws God's hand, not because God doesn't love, but because God says it is too damaging for the world around you for you to continue going on like this. I must put a stop to it. You were supposed to produce justice, but you have produced the exact opposite. Bloodshed, injustice, oppression. Not happy-go-lucky in this text. But there is good news. There's another passage of scripture that I I just want to jump to. I know I don't do this very often, but I'm going to today. It's in Luke chapter 13. I'm just going to read it for you. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit upon this fig tree, and yet I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting soil? But the gardener replied, sir, let it alone for one more year. Till I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. As I was reflecting on Isaiah chapter 5 and the doom and gloom that it brings, Isaiah is not a happy-go-lucky prophet. I mean, the prophets rarely are. There is much to be worried about and saddened about as, as he comes and he presents this case from God to the people of Israel, saying, you were his lovely vineyard, and yet you did not produce fruit. But as I reflected on it, as I thought about it, this, this parable of the fig tree kept coming up in my mind. Because the parable of the fig tree gives us some more insight into the character of God. It's quite obvious in the parable of the fig tree who the gardener is. The gardener is Jesus who intercedes. Who says, it's not bearing fruit. Not yet. It should have, I understand, but but let me let me spend some time with it. Let me intercede for it. Let me work with it. And then if it doesn't bear fruit so fine good, we'll we'll work on it. But give me another year. <coughs> now the parable of the fig tree doesn't have an ending. We're not told what happens. It's open-ended. But again as I was reflecting on this, my mind came to another passage of scripture in the book of John. I am the vine and you are the branches. See, what's, what's interesting to me about all of this, and I hope I'm not going too crazy confusing to there, what we have in Isaiah chapter 5 is God saying there's nothing else I could do. How else am I to intercede? How else am I to help this plant bear good fruit? But if we fast forward many, many years something happens. The, the plant is not the people of Israel. The rootstock, at least, is not the people of Israel. The rootstock is Jesus. Jesus is the vine, and the people are the branches. And we know, right, if you plant good plants, what will happen? It will bear good fruit. So essentially, the story of Jesus is this plant didn't bear good fruit, And so God comes, makes his dwelling among us, takes on flesh like unto us. And then Jesus says, guess what? You cannot produce good fruit apart from me. Jesus becomes the very root, the very stock, the very vine, the very tree upon which this fruit grows. What the, what the plant could not do on its own, God says, guess what? I will do this in you. The people could not produce righteousness on their own, even with all of God's help, even all that tending that God did. <coughs> what more could I do? Well, the people of Isaiah would say nothing. The, the, the vine dresser did everything. But God, infinite in love, abounding in steadfast love, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, if you were there, is unwilling even then to give up on the people of Israel. That's the rest of the story of Isaiah. Through all this, this craziness, even when God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna withdraw my protection and you're gonna go into exile, God says to the people, yet I will not leave you. And then at the end of Isaiah, we have this promise of return that I will bring you back in the land. I will make you fruitful once again. <clears throat> and we see the fulfillment of this. This promise, this conundrum that the people of Israel find themselves in, unable to bear good fruit, God says, I will do it in you. For even while we are yet sinners, Christ dies for us. But Christ does not simply die for us so that we can go to heaven someday when we die. That is not the totality of the gospel. The totality of the gospel. Is that Christ dies for us so that we can be a part of the vine. So that we can bear good fruit. So that when God comes looking for good fruit, God will find good fruit. Not because of our wonderful nature, but because Christ, who is in us, enables us to do it. Without Jesus, apart from that vine, the branches, we who are the branches, can do nothing. But... God gives us his own self so that if we remain in him, he bears good fruit in us. Good roots make good soil, or excuse me, make good fruit. And this is what God does for us in Christ so that we might in him bear good fruit. So that we might, I got a little behind on my slides. So we might be the good fruit that, that the vine dresser comes to expect. And where this all is rooted out, where this all comes from. I, I hope we know that, that as we look at this, what God has come to look for in the people of Israel. And I'll Isaiah chapter 5 is righteousness, is justice. That is the character of God worked out in the people of God. It's not simply about you didn't confess your sins. That's part of it. It's about that bearing fruit of righteousness, being the people who reflect the nature and the character of God. God forms Israel, not just because they're wonderful people and God wants a nice people who look good for him. God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you so that you might bless the world. I want you to be the people of God that you might give the character of God, that you might inhabit the character of God, the justice, the love, the compassion of God in the world, in a world that is not overly concerned about other people. God says, I want you to exhibit the character of God, which loves all and desires all to flourish, to live in relationship with one another and relationship with their creator so that things might be tove or good. People didn't inhabit that. And so God gives God's self to us so that once again, we might be the people that God has called us to be. That we might fulfill that good fruit so that in the church where the people of God are gathered, we we might find righteousness and justice and goodness and love. Rather than oppression, injustice, anger, hatred, those things are expected outside, but they should not be expected here. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. The fruit of God at work in us is love, and all the things that love means. The fruit of God at work in us is this: is is what what again we read in Sunday school, Micah six eight right? He has told you, O human, what is good? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. The people of Israel couldn't do it. And quite frankly, we can't do it either. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But we were never meant to do it alone, out of our own goodness, our own kindness, and our own compassion. Rather, we are meant to allow the goodness from the vine, from Christ to work in us and to work through us, to train, transform, renew us into the people that God has called us to be so that we might bear good fruit. So the song written about us does not have that dangerous and unwelcome turn, but that the songs written about us is that when I came to find justice, I found justice. For you remained in me When I came to find love, I found love because you remained in me. When I came to find freedom from oppression, I found it because you remained in me. All this we do only as we remain in him. If you remain in me, he says, you will bear good fruit. All of our goodness comes from him. For we are created to be in him. All of our kindness comes from him. For we were created to be in him. For from him, goodness flows in us. So that we might be recipients of his love and grace. And then through us that we might bear fruit of love and grace. So the world may come and taste goodness. Good grapes, if you will, rather than wild grapes. This is his doing, though. This is Christ's doing, not I, but Christ who is in me, as Paul says. For apart from him, we can do nothing. As the worship team comes often in history we have tried to do this on our own. The church has tried to do it on our own. We have turned to others to do this in us or for us. We've turned to governments. We've turned to nonprofits. We've turned to all sorts of other places to say, you guys do this for us. You bring this vision of God's kingdom. But that's not really how God has worked in us or called us. Those things can be aids and helps. But this is God's doing in the church, in those who are called by his name. The kingdom of God does not come through a government, through violent revolution. The kingdom of God comes as the people of God remain in him and bear much fruit. The fruits of the spirit brings in us as we remain in him, as we remain in the one who has called us we allow the spirit to form us and transform us into the image of God that we might do the works of God in the world. Not I, but Christ in me.